Matters. You're listening to Sound Matters, a podcast about sound and stuff that matters. Brought to you by Bang & Olufsen. My name is Tim Hinman. This time, music. Bad music. I mean really, really bad music. Music that is actually bad for you. Now, I'm sure we all have tunes we'd rather never hear again. Even whole genres of music that, to our refined ears, sound about as good as someone dragging their fingernails down a chalkboard. Perhaps as a child, or maybe even worse, as a parent, you've had to endure a school concert, for example. A concert that somehow made it seem like life simply was no longer worth living. It might be dreadful, but can it really ever be harmful to hear music? That's the big question in this episode. Can certain types of music actually make you ill, kill you even? Can music destroy your nervous system, affect your ability to have children? Can music control your mind, get you addicted to drugs, or turn you into a knife-wielding murderer? To talk about this subject, I caught up with this man. My name is Dr. James Kennaway. Uh, I'm a senior research fellow at the University of Roehampton in London. I'm currently in the basement of the British Library. Dr. James Kennaway is in the basement of the British Library in London because he's researching a new book. But one of his previous works that caught my attention is a book called Bad Vibrations. And I'm meant to be talking, I think, about my, a book I read a few years ago called Bad Vibrations, about the history of the idea that music can make people ill. You'd be forgiven for thinking that medical literature would be generally positive about the effect of music on our health. But that's not what James Kennaway discovered. When I was doing my research, it became pretty clear that for an awful lot of the last 200 years, there was far more written about music being bad for you than good for you. Anxieties that it would make women hysterical and could make men gay, and perhaps more recently things like it can make American teenagers shoot themselves or shoot other people, that it can turn them into puppets. Well, uh, if you talk to the average teenager of today and you ask them what it is about rock and roll music that they like, and the first thing they'll say is the beat. With the stuff I'm talking about, there's almost always another very clear agenda about, uh, particularly, for example, controlling young women. So, is the, you know, if music, uh, any kind of music is attracted to teenage girls, it's normally the subject of some kind of panic. Teenage savages go wild in a juvenile jungle of lust and lawlessness. We've uh, set up a 20-man committee to do away with the vulgar, analytic rock and roll box. There are ways that music can harm you, and proven ways, and we'll get to some of them later, but most of it, most of what's been said down the ages, it seems, is actually just plain nonsense. Almost everything that I talk about in my book is kind of nonsense. 
people can be hurt by music in all sorts of ways. If it's extremely loud, there are certain rare conditions like musicogenic epilepsy, where music can be a trigger, not a cause, but a trigger for an epileptic fit. There are things like that, but they're really very rare. And of course, music can cause all sorts of powerful emotions, which in turn can make people ill. There's a very long list, for example, of conductors who have died uh, while conducting uh, Tristan and Isolde by Wagner, which is long and intense. I'm guessing that you're not likely to be conducting Tristram and Isolde by Wagner today, or even in the near future. So let's just walk back through history and trace, along with Dr. James Kenaway, the history of the idea of pathological music, the idea of music as a cause of disease. In the 18th century, the big difference is that people start to talk less about music in terms of cosmic harmony and more about it in terms of nervous stimulation. They get a more, so to speak, scientific way of, of thinking about music. And so music can be understood as a potentially dangerous stimulant. But in the 18th century, we're already getting a handful of examples, especially in the last sort of 20 years of the 18th century. You get people, for example, supposedly dying while playing the triangle in Handel at Westminster Abbey. Uh, there's a big panic right at the end of the 18th century about the uh, glass harmonica, the musical glasses instrument, in fact, invented by Benjamin Franklin, which you play with rotating glasses and, and wet fingers. And the effect on the fingers and on the ears was the subject of a big um, panic. There was a, f a famous player from Vienna called um, Kirchgesner, and when she died, the press reported that, well, obviously, you know, she died because of playing this instrument. Two Welsh sisters retired, and when they, when they did, they explicitly said, well, obviously, you know, we can't play the glass harmonica for many years without it totally destroying our nervous systems. Once upon a time, it was a high-risk job playing the triangle or the glass harmonica. Playing or even just listening to music has been seen as downright dangerous, especially for women. The most productive day I ever had in the library was when I went through every gynecological textbook from the end of the 19th century, and every single one had music in the index. The, French, the ones that were written by Frenchmen all said that music was like poetry, it was this kind of sensual, slightly depraved pleasure that would lead to premature sexualization, premature and excessive menstruation, affairs, that kind of thing. For example, one French doctor said, well, this is obviously why, it's really the piano lessons that explain why girls in Paris menstruate earlier than their country cousins. You know, he was talking about, you know, the rich elite girls in Paris that he was seeing starting menstruation a year or two earlier than the, their poorer country cousins. It's just because they were eating properly. But, you know, when he saw that evidence and made what he thought was an intelligent um, assumption that, oh, it, you know, they all play the piano. That must be a, a stimulant. So there we go. So much for the dangers of French music. Back in the United States in the mid-1800s, music had a different set of negative effects on the female of the species. All the American gynecologists argued that it would basically uh, ruin female uh, fertility. It would make women unable to have sex, unable to menstruate, and it would leave them um, 
destroyed, lonely, bitter spinsters. So everyone agreed that music was definitely related to menstruation and gynecological health, but they presented entirely contradictory arguments to, to prove it. By everyone here, Dr. Kenaway is of course referring to the male gynecologists of the day. All men. So 19th century discussions, as I said, of music and gynaecology were all about the nerves. That you have gynaecologists basically saying, in very grand terms, that women are just a nervous system and a uterus. That's what, that's what a woman is. And if you, if you think of, of women in that way, then it makes more sense than perhaps for us to think of music having an effect on gynaecology, if you see what I mean. A woman must be kept away from stimulating types of music at all costs for the sake of her fertility, and to protect her fragile nerves. When composers like Wagner began making grandiose, over-emotional music in the later part of the 1800s, it was by no means safe for a woman to hear it. All that excess of emotion would set your nerves on end and would simply destroy a woman's physical and moral fabric. It didn't take long for the makers of this dangerous stuff to become the targets of blame from the medical profession for spreading musical poison around society. Wagner was in fact the first composer to face a systematic um, attack on the, on the basis of his music, saying it was bad for you. Now we're entering the decades of history where ideas like psychology begin to come to the forefront. This led inevitably to analyzing the mental weaknesses of the composers themselves. His letters to his seamstress in Vienna, which showed he spent an amazing amount of money on silk underwear and silk and satin. They were published in psychiatric journals and all this kind of stuff. There was a man who wrote a, a novel about that called Wagnerians in Love. There's a huge scene just giving him a hard time. Partly he started, in fact, because of his appalling anti-Semitism. So he, Wagner sort of had it coming. And there were uh, psychiatric studies producing that he is, he's literally a psychopath. However, that was mostly uh, actually done by people who were politically fairly liberal, who were in many ways responding to his anti-Semitism. But the generation after Wagner, um, these ideas, this kind of psychiatric critique of music, gets mixed up with uh, kind of right-wing racial politics in Germany and starts to be associated with attacks on, on Jewish musicians, people like uh, Gustav Mahler and then Arnold Schoenberg, people like that. Enter the 20th century and things really begin to go off the rails for music as a health risk. Because now music can put the mental health of whole nations on the line. After the First World War, that really becomes radicalised. You, uh, you get a lot of discussion about of psychiatric um, attacks on music in terms of music Bolshevism and the Jewish menace. And that ends, that leads in, in, um, up to the Nazis when they come in. And one of the very early things to do already in 1933 is to ban music that is um, bad for the, for the German people. Before the Second World War, popular music is becoming recorded music, and so it's spreading. It spreads through the radio, it spreads through the gramophone, it spreads directly into the homes of ordinary people. What dangers lurk in this new technology? What risk is there of the spread of new musical disease? 
first half of the 20th century in particular, all the stuff about music being bad for you gets caught up with racism, with so-called scientific racism. It all depends, really, as ever, on what you want to prove, on what your agenda is. But it's around this time that one of the most dangerous types of music of all history appears. Jazz. There are people writing about ragtime before the First World War, but there's essentially a massive panic in 1922. It's very specific. All of a sudden, the, in America in particular, the music journals, are kind of weekly newspapers about music and also medical books, there's a huge panic about, uh, about jazz. And it's also rather incoherent. Uh, on the one hand, jazz is meant to be this kind of primitive jungle drums, sensual, sexual, dangerous music from the jungle. And at the same time, it's a hyper-modern uh, Manhattan, you know, they can't really make up their minds. It, it, so it gets attacked for being both. Um, one of my favorite quotes in my book is something from the man who ran the Napa Lunatic Asylum. He said that half of our um, patients are jazz-happy dope fiends. People took it um, very seriously. And it's fascinating because you see um, the kind of critique of music as a, as a danger to health. In the late 19th century, it often focused on, for people like Wagner and Debussy, on the kind of a weakness of the rhythm. There's a whole kind of uh, subsection of this criticism saying, ah, it's all about the rhythm and the lack of a clear rhythm you know, makes people all crazy. And people say precisely the same thing about the strong rhythm in jazz by the 1920s. You know, the, uh, the agenda kind of keeps on going, even if the evidence is the opposite. Modern musical times, you could really argue, start around the 1950s and move onwards from there. And you'd sort of be forgiven for thinking that far-fetched medical ideas of music being bad for you might have been left on the shelf around this time. When I first started writing my book, when I did a proposal, I said that the Nazi idea of degenerate music uh, in the 1930s, 1940s was really the end of this. That you know, the defeat and ideological collapse of the Nazis really means it's all over. Um, but I've, I found out so much more material when I was doing the book that I had to do another large chapter at the end because in some ways the post-war period in fact and now the 21st century are really the golden age of panics about music. From the 1950s and onwards it seems that dangerous music moves deeper and deeper into our minds, deeper into the psyche, deeper into our individual brains. In parallel with scientific discovery and new ways of thinking about the brain. That two-beat pattern is the music brought to the United States of America by the communist conspiracy to corrupt teenagers, and it's in every rock and roll member. Straight after the war, in the 50s in particular, there was a huge and incredibly amusing for me panic about musical brainwashing. The word brainwashing was, and I love this factoid, the word bra brainwashing was literally invented by a journalist stroke CIA agent who translated a Chinese word that means something really rather different to explain why American service POWs in Korea seemed to be going on uh, newsreels and saying that, you know, I love Joseph Stalin or things like that. And, and it's nonsense. And then you had the CIA spreading the rumor that there were Kremlin-inspired musical brainwashing units in Korea and also in Russia. And that, that explains for them lots of things that were happening. Teams of KGB musical agents hiding communist propaganda inside popular music, turning honest American GIs into socialists, corrupting ordinary suburban kids and turning them into rock and roll communists.
That gets caught up in the 1960s with the panic about the, uh, you know, kind of left-wing students. You get books written by right-wing Americans that say things like, the Beatles are just waiting to play one magic chord and that will lead the young people of America to raise the red flag of revolution over the White House, things like that. And that gets changed already or before the end of the Cold War already in the 1980s. The panic shifts in America in particular from communism to Satanism. And you get a, the widespread satanic panic. Remember, this is at the same time as you got the idea that there was a, a worldwide satanic conspiracy of ritualistic child abuse. Over and over again, there were these kind of hysterical episodes. It happened here and on the continent, but especially in North America. And every single time it's been proved to just not be true. You know, it's, been, it's just kind of an example, strange kind of phenomenon, and there's no evidence for it. But it was widely believed at the time, and it was also widely believed by uh, certain conservatives in the United States, that this was um, caused by heavy metal music, and that heavy metal music was literally a satanic plot to brainwash Americans. And you get the famous thing, of course, with the um, backward messaging that you already get the Beatles, of course, and Musique Concrète in France before that. But you get whole books written explaining that backward messaging is causing young people in America to worship Satan. And there's also, uh, in that context, the famous case where Judas Priest was sued by parents who blamed the attempted suicide of their children on uh, Judas Priest saying, do it backwards. Why do you think Raymond committed suicide that day? I think he was affected by the music he was listening to. The main witness was a marine biologist who said he, who said he could hear, do it, and that was the whole of their case and they got thrown out. And each time do it is increased in hysterical intensity. So it's do it, do it, do it, do it. This failed case got the idea into the mainstream, and I think probably. Half the people on the street probably believe that now, that there's secret backward messaging that can make you puppet of your enemies. It's always really been an ambition of mine to get a job in the secret backward messaging department of a major record label. As a sort of general job application, I'd like to offer one right here. In fact, I'd like to offer it directly to the executive producer of this program, Nathaniel Basinski. Now, there's no need to extract this audio and play it backwards. It's not so easy as it used to be with a good old-fashioned record player. But still, here's the message. I'm not saying that Satan is Lord. I'm saying Nathan is Lord. Exactly what this is all doing to your psyche, I can't be sure. The idea of dangerous, bad-for-you music is still as popular as ever. It's getting ever deeper into our psyches and messing ever more seriously with our minds. And now, of course, the danger isn't just spread by the gramophone and by the radio. It's spread by the root of all evil, the Internet. Did you ever hear of binaural beats, for example? The binaural beat stuff, um, that was now maybe about 10 years ago. Uh, there are articles in the Daily Mail and clips in American TV about so-called digital drugs, where you can buy you know, digital heroin and digital marijuana, whatever, and then you wear headphones and they play binaural beats at you. 
it created a kind of minor moral and some more or less medicalized panic. I think the Colorado local TV news is absolutely priceless. Taking a stand against the latest internet craze. Have you ever heard of this? It's called iDosing. And websites are luring kids with free downloads of so-called digital drugs, which are audio files designed to induce drug-like effects. Adriana Ivashinsky has just returned from Mustang Live with the details on this alarming new trend. I've got to admit, I'd never heard of it before. Kelly, parents really need to listen up on this one. That's because all kids need to experience these digital drugs are headphones, their computer, and an MP3 player. Though the websites that tout them say they're a safe and legal way to get high, the theory is it could lead to illegal drug use. It basically, binaural beats are just, you, know, you wear headphones, you get slightly different beats in each ear, and nobody gets high about this. It's like uh, teenagers smoking banana leaves or nutmeg cigarettes or something, pretending to get high. And if the plan was to, to do it and annoy their parents, it sort of succeeded because there was a little panic about this. In fact, I can highly recommend if you want a good laugh, go on YouTube and look at clips of 15-year-old boys pretending to be high while wearing headphones. Oh! Whoa, dude. Whoa, dude. Whoa, my God. Are you all right, man? Oh. <laughs> you oh, it. That was so fun. There's no evidence that it hurts you, but but we should definitely back it anyway. <laughs> In a strange twist of fate, many past panics caused by nonsense medical science about how music can affect you badly have actually spawned real research into the weaponization of music. Most of the stuff I look at in previous generations has obvious other agendas, and it's really, generally speaking, not true that music is bad for you. However, in the context of the uh, so-called war on terror, it's very clear that music was used to deliberately hurt people, physically, but especially psychologically. Research into ways that music can harm and affect people, and music is used deliberately to cause harm. Uh, the CIA also, it seems, has two different types of songs. They clearly have song lists, uh, one of which is called Futility Music, which, uh, which is a weird, great name for a band. Um, in any case, that's the, um, when they play essentially things like children's music and really irritating children's songs in extremely high volumes in a shipping container for weeks on end until you lose your mind. The other version seems to be very loud, aggressive rap and hip-hop, things like that, to offend people's religious sensibilities and just you know, sort of feel intimidated by the aggression. So yeah, that was a bit depressing, yeah, having talked for about 200 years of stuff where it's not true, uh, to have it being sort of true at the end is a bit depressing. After so much negativity, panic trends, the fear of Satanism, communism, fascism, moral degradation, nervous collapse, Modern times have, of course, also brought very positive medical applications which involve medical therapies through music. And there's no doubt that there are many excellent therapies involving music that are now in use and are being developed more and more. But there's still a danger, and there are still traveling snake oil salesmen who will sell ideas to make money. So beware of grand claims. Beware of weak science. Beware of baby Mozart. In terms of music therapy, the most famous one perhaps is the Mozart effect, the so-called Mozart effect, which spread like wildfire and in the end had the idea that if you play Mozart to your infant and then eventually your unborn child will turn into an upper middle class genius and earn lots of money. It really is as crude as that. 
you could buy special equipment that were speakers for your for your womb, literally speakers for your womb, so you could magically make them upper middle class. And of course, Mozart isn't a scientific category, you know. It's uh, what he is, of course, is a symbol of, of semi-divine child genius in our society, you know, and of upper middle class status. It's certainly not a scientific category, you know. It's not like you know soft music or loud music or rhythmic music or whatever. The end of Don Giovanni isn't the same as one of his piano concertos or something, you know. It's really, it's remarkably unscientific, and it's everywhere, and everybody believes in it. It's frankly complete cobblers. It's all frankly complete cobblers, as Dr. James Kinoway says. It remains to be seen what will create the next cultural music panic attack. And it remains to be seen if technology will ever develop music that could really kill or hurt you, or music that will truly cure you and make you better. In the meantime, take solace in the fact that the school concert will soon be over and we can all go home. And that's all I have time for in this edition of Sound Matters. A huge thank you to Dr. James Kenaway. Check out his book, Bad Vibrations, The History of the Idea of Music as a Cause of Disease, or follow him on Twitter with the handle JG Kenaway. Thanks to Rose de Larabetti for helping in London doing the recordings. Thanks to Ola Fool and Mas Lungor for help in editing. And thanks, of course, to Nathaniel Buzinski from Bang & Olufsen. Sound Matters is, of course, made possible by Bang & Olufsen, and you can find out much more about them at bang-olufsen.com. My name is Tim Hinman. I wrote and produced this, and I'll be back again soon with more stories of sound and stuff that matters. Goodbye. Sound. Sound. Music. Acoustic. Noise. Sound. I have a favorite sound, I think. Sound. Ultrasonic. How they listen. Just a little. Boop. The one place where it sounds the best. You're listening to sound. Sound matters.